Well, good morning again, and thanks for being here, and what a wonderful privilege we have to worship our Savior uh, each and every Sunday, but in a special way as we consider the incarnation this time of year. I'll be traveling to Dallas early tomorrow morning, and while I'm looking forward to, to getting down there for the conference I'll be attending early part of the week, I have to say that, that the one part of the trip that I am absolutely not looking forward to is being at the airport. Uh, either on this side of the journey in Omaha or on that side of the journey in Dallas. And that's not because I have a, a fear of flying and it's not because of the long lines and it's not because of some fear of being assigned to a middle seat. No, the reason I'm not looking forward to being at the airport tomorrow, three weeks before Christmas, is that I think airports at Christmas time have to be one of the saddest places on earth. I mean, you look around and there is just a sense of emptiness all around you. I mean, airports already feel desolate and sterile all year long, but this time of year in December, it's like they've just added an extra layer of sadness and an extra layer of melancholy by throwing a, a string of tinsel or lights on a Christmas tree that's covering a carpet stain that hasn't been addressed for two and a half years. Or there's, you know, the workers there, the, the concession stand workers who are stuffed into Christmas sweaters that you're not sure if they're intentionally ugly or just ugly. And there are folks who are walking around with their $11 peppermint mochas staring into their phones so as to disengage, not have any human connection with anybody. Then you have the sleep-deprived college students, listen up now, who are, are just showing up in their pajamas like they just rolled out of bed and traveling the friendly skies. The airport at Christmas time, at least for me, is not a fun place to be. In fact, I think it's a sad place to be as there's this dreary fog of pine and peppermint and body odor and jet fuel that hangs over the place. But it gets only sadder and it only gets more dreary as you look beyond the surface level and you look beyond the twinkling lights and the, the fake snow and, and Frosty the snowman playing. And as you start to look all around you at the airport and you see these individuals who bear the image of almighty God, and they're breathing his air and they're, they're soaking in his goodness. And they might otherwise be in what they would call the Christmas spirit. And you start thinking to yourself, where are they all going? And by that, I don't mean, I don't mean like, where are they going on this leg of their journey? Like, are they going to Houston to see that client or to Hawaii to get some sand between their toes or to go home for the holidays? No, I mean, what's their final destination? Where are they going in the ultimate sense? And sure, statistics would likely show that in a typical airport terminal, there might be a couple who are of God's elect. There might be a couple of individuals at gate 17 who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. But for the rest of them, this collection of cursed souls who are, are racing around so frantically in this hurry to pack themselves into this fast-moving, jet-propelled metal tube, they have no thought or hope of or hope for the future which awaits them. And then it gets even sadder, and it gets even more dark as the real deep questions start brewing, like, like 100 years from now, or, or 1,000 years from now, or 10,000 years from now, or 10 million years from now, will any of part of this trip that they're on right now matter? Will the experiences they're running after matter? Will the dollars they're pursuing matter? Will the relationship that they're going to chase on the other side of the country matter? Will the memories that they're gathering for their scrapbook or their Facebook wall or their Instagram feed matter? Will any of it matter? Bringing it back to the season we're embarking on, 
Will they have any memory of Christmas lights or Bing Crosby or Mariah Carey or Grandma's Cookies or Hot Cocoa or Peppermint Bark or Fudge or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or heading home for the holidays? Will any of it matter? Will any of it comfort them? Multiple millennia from now, when the blazing and billowing flames of a real hell are licking all around them. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourselves, in light of all this and all this beauty that we see all around us, goodness, Jesse, will you lighten up? Merry Christmas. I mean, the title of the series, after all, is Joy to the World. And Jesse, you're supposed to be talking about God sending and Jesus arriving and angels announcing and wise men worshiping and all of us rejoicing. Don't worry, we'll get there. We are going to go through in this series in December what the Bible says about joy and biblical joy. And we are going to look at what it means biblically to seek joy and to be striving for joy. And we'll certainly get to the glorious reality that through Christ's birth and through his incarnation, we have been supplied with joy. But today's message, this introductory message, we're going to consider the truth that before any of us came to know Christ, the God-man, the savior and the hope of the world, the one who we worship and celebrate at Christmas, we were starved for joy. Sure, we may have experienced pleasures of various types. Sure, we might have thought that we were happy, but we had no joy. Indeed, it was impossible for us to have joy because we didn't have a relationship with the living God who is the very source of joy. Instead, we pursued lifestyles and behavior and ways of living that are completely antithetical to the one, the person who has true joy. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, Titus 3, 3 to be specific. Just like there'll be those who question whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie, there'll be those who question whether this is a Christmas verse. I think it is. Because it shows how hopeless and ultimately how joyless our existence was before we came to know Christ. This verse shows us how desperate our plight was, how badly we were in need of a savior. The very savior God supplied when he sent his son, the Lord Jesus, into the world on a rescue mission to seek and to save that which was lost. Look at Titus 3.3. God's word reads, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. We're gonna camp out in this single verse here this morning as we consider the seven traits of the joy-starved soul. I'll say it again, seven traits of the joy-starved soul. Fa-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la. You can see why I don't get many Christmas invites and Christmas party invites throughout the year. Now, before we work through each of these seven traits, since we find ourselves in this new book that we're not really regularly studying right now, the book of Titus, it would be helpful to develop some of the context here and some of the background here. What's happening in the book of Titus? Uh, What's the setting of the book? What's the context of the book? Well, the setting of this book is the island of Crete, this naturally beautiful sun-splashed island sitting in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. It's a place where a man named Titus, Paul's pastoral protege, was called and sent to go minister. In fact, if you go over to Titus chapter 1, we'll see Titus mentioned by name there. Look at Titus 1.4, where Paul addresses him this way, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, 
our Savior. And then right after that, in verse 5, we see Titus's connection to the island of Crete, where it says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And what we know elsewhere from Scripture is that Titus was a trustworthy man. He was a man who ministered regularly alongside the Apostle Paul. We know this from places like Galatians chapter 2, where we see that Titus accompanied Paul to the Jerusalem council. Uh, We see this in the book of 2 Corinthians, where Titus is mentioned nine times in that book alone as being Paul's trustworthy companion. So while Titus was junior to Paul in terms of rank, he was by no means inexperienced in the ministry. And and that was a good thing because there were very many problems that were surfacing already in these churches in Crete. In fact, if we keep reading on in Titus 1, we'll see see what some of these problems look like. Look at Titus 1.10. Titus 1.10 says, For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. Or down in verse 12, it says, One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Or verse 14 says they were paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who were turning them away from the truth. And then verse 16, look at this indictment. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. And who was it that Paul charged with bringing these churches there in Crete back into line? It was Titus. Look at the next verse in Titus 2.1. He says, but as for you, that's addressing Titus, Speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. So Paul there is speaking to Titus, and as he does so, he's saying, Titus, there are problems in those churches, and you are instructed now, you're in charge of getting those things fixed. You need to get those churches back in line, and the way you do so, as it says here in Titus 2.1, is to speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Now, back in May of this year, on, on Mother's Day, we went through Titus 2, 3 through 5, where we encountered Paul's instructions to Titus to give to the women there about how they were to instruct other women about what it means to be a godly woman. And then on Father's Day in June, we went through Titus 2, 6 through 8, and we saw something very similar where Paul addresses the godly older men as to how they're to instruct the godly younger men about what it means to be a godly man. And now all these months later, we're reading on in Titus 2 into Titus 3, where we're going to see Paul giving even more exhortations and commands. For instance, In Titus 2, 9 and 10, we see instructions about bond servants, bond slaves, and how they're to be subject to their masters. Titus 2, 9, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Then there are those commands following, and in Titus 3, to Christians to be subject to ruling authorities. And also to show a certain deference and respect to fellow mankind. Look at Titus 3, 1 and 2. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. So there are all these reminders that Paul is giving Titus here up to this point in this little letter about the various ways that the Christians in the churches in Crete there were to interact with each other. Women to women, men to men, citizens to government, and believers vis-a-vis their fellow man. And then in our passage for today, Titus 3.3, Paul, who is up to this point been moving the commands in a forward direction, now throws it in reverse and takes it back in time to that time when we didn't have that relationship with God. 
to that time when we weren't living by the standards he's laid out, when we weren't experiencing the joy that true believers have and can have by virtue of knowing Christ. And we see that backward-looking perspective laid out here, again, in Titus 3.3, where he says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Now, you'll note right away that Paul there doesn't exempt himself from the charge of, of having once acted in these very ways. He doesn't exempt himself from himself having once been one of these joyless, hell-bound rebels against God. And that's very characteristic of Paul, to, to lump himself in with the group that he's addressing. He does that in other places in, the, in his writings, like in 1 Timothy 1.13. He says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. So Paul, in other words, is not always, always pointing the finger. He's sometimes including himself in the charge. Or in Philippians 3, 6, after he's given that long biographical statement there in Philippians 3 about who he once was, he mentions he was a persecutor of the church. And then here in Titus 3, 3, he's highlighting the fact that he really had never forgotten that, that joyless, sinful condition from which he had once been rescued. And he didn't want the Christians there under Titus's care at Crete to forget the depths from which they had been rescued also. And that is also very characteristic of Paul, who in his writings, in his letters, his epistles, over and over, he encourages those believers to, of course, remember the great salvation that they've been gifted and granted, but at the same time, not to be forgetful of the, the very depths of the sin and the depravity from which they were rescued. In fact, we see that over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You can turn over there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is an example of Paul reminding a church who they once were and now who they are. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Paul here says to the church at Corinth, or, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And then verse 11, here's that backward-looking perspective again. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. He does something similar, Paul does, over in Ephesians chapter 4, where he just simply tells those believers at Ephesus to lay aside the old self. That's acknowledging that there is an old self, but it's been laid aside. Now, as we turn back to Titus 3, before we get into our, our study here of the, the meanings and the definitions of these individual terms that Paul lists out here, I don't want our, our study of those individual trees, so to speak, to blur our vision of the larger picture here of the forest. Meaning that that major broad point that Paul is making here in this text, which is that before any of us came to faith in Jesus Christ, our lives were characterized by sins such as these. Maybe we weren't enslaved to each and every one of these sins equally. Maybe we didn't struggle with the very sin, certain sins, the way that others might struggle with them more than we do. But the point he's making here is that we as human beings in our original condition, in our natural unregenerate state, were at enmity with God. 
depraved in our nature and at enmity with God. Romans 5.10, he describes us as being enemies of God in this former condition. In Ephesians 2.3, Paul says, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We've seen in our study in Colossians, in Colossians 1.21, Paul says, we were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. And this is true that we were enemies of God, we were hostile in mind, that we were engaged in evil deeds, no matter how outwardly moral or respectable or religious we may have come across to others. Instead of the kind, gracious, Christ-like people that Christians are called to be, we were just the opposite. Instead of being sensible and sober-minded, we were foolish. Instead of being submissive, we were disobedient and rebellious. Instead of being led by and guided by and shaped by truth, we were deceived. Instead of being disciplined and committed to performing righteous deeds, we were enslaved by various kinds of passions and lusts and desires. Instead of being peaceable and considerate and humble, we were marked by malice and envy. And instead of being marked by love for God and love for others, we were marked by hate. Here's how one commentator taking each of these seven traits of the joy-starved soul and and mixing them all together, summarizes them. He says, such is the brutish existence of people apart from God. While a veneer of civilization often obscures that bleak truth, the slightest crack in the surface of society reveals the reality behind the facade. The painful truth is that apart from God, people degenerate into little more than animals wrangling over bones. You catch the last line? Apart from God, people degenerate into little more than animals wrangling over bones. Putting that in the vernacular of the modern Christmas holiday, that sounds a lot like what we see happening around us this time of year. The Black Friday rush. I'm not sure if we have that anymore in in the online age in which we live, but you've seen the news accounts of people fighting over parking spots and fighting for big screen TVs and fighting for Tickle Me Elmo. You've seen you know, the intra-family squabbles over who owes who the phone call and who gets the last leg of turkey and whose gift costs the most. Sadly, a lot of behavior that we see around Christmas does resemble, like this commentator says, animals wrangling over bones. And here in Titus 3.3, Paul is speaking of man's unregenerate condition. Putting it in the context of our Christmas series this year, Paul is highlighting man's sad, desperate, hopeless, joyless condition before the light of the world came into the world. Before the light of the gospel flooded the the darkness of our wicked and depraved hearts. And the picture we're being given here is, is far from flattering. As we're about to see, professing to know all the answers, we were actually foolish. We were unable to comprehend spiritual truths. We were unwise in our choices and our conduct. We were disobedient to God and to parents and to authorities. We were deceived by the devil in our own perverted form of judgment. We were enslaved to various ungodly thoughts and practices and habits. And we were miserable and we made others miserable. Truly, truly, it was a sad commentary on mankind's existence here outside of Christ. A life full of disputing, full of feuding, full of consternation, full of heartache, a life full of grief and mourning and a lack of joy. 
let me just say, a walk through the airport won't fix that. Certainly not in December. With that, let's get into our seven traits. The seven traits of the joy-starved soul, which we start here at the beginning of verse three. Trait number one, he says, for we also once were foolish ourselves. Foolish. The word there is anoetas. And I say that not to show off with Greek lingo. Noe just means the mind. And when you put the letter a before any word in Greek, it's the opposite of that thing. So noe means mind or reason or intellect. If you're anoe, you're foolish. You're not of the mind. You're not reasoning properly. And that's the idea here. Paul is using that term to describe our former condition. A time in which we had a complete lack of understanding. A time in which we were once ignorant and uninformed. And and ignorant and uninformed, the meaning here is of a, a specific field of information. A specific vein of information. And Paul here very clearly is not referring to just any type of knowledge that we lacked or any type of information that we lacked. He's not concerned here with how much a person knows about world affairs or regulatory policy or quantum, quantum physics or, or economic theory. No, Paul's point here is that no matter how advanced a person's education and intellectual accomplishments may be, putting it in our day-to-day, no matter how many diplomas or degrees he's acquired, no matter how many letters follow his name, no matter how many books he's read or how many books he's written, it ultimately doesn't matter. It's ultimately of no importance without knowledge of the living God. Knowledge which comes with having a relationship with that living God. And that that relationship with that living God only comes by having faith in the Son. The one who does not know God. The one who rejects God. Though his head be filled with all sorts of data and information and stuff. Is foolish. He's a fool. He's blind to the ultimate truth. He's blind to the ultimate source of truth, who is God himself. That's what Paul is saying here in this passage, when he says we were foolish ourselves. He says it elsewhere as well. In fact, go over with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Familiar passage, I'm sure, to many, where we see this contrast between wisdom of the world, so-called wisdom of the world, and the wisdom of God. Look at 1 Corinthians 1. Picking up in verse 20, he says, where is the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And then jump down to verse 25 where he says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There's that contrast between so-called worldly wisdom and the wisdom of God. The two are not connected. There's actually an inverse relationship between the two. Now look down at verse 14 of chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. Something very similar is said here about the unbeliever and his, the, the, the limitations on his unbelieving intellect. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. The idea here is that no matter how brilliant a person is, no matter how intelligent they may be, no matter how intelligent or insightful they may seem, if he doesn't know Christ, if he doesn't have the spirit of God living in him, he is spiritually speaking, deaf, blind, and dumb. He's a fool. And the thing is, he has only himself to blame. 
Ephesians 4.18, speaking of the unbeliever, says they're darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. In other words, God isn't unfairly blindfolding the unbeliever. He's not unfairly tying the unbeliever's hands behind their back, spiritually speaking. Rather, the unbeliever contributes to his own blindness through the hardness of his own heart and through his own willful ignorance which we see over in Romans chapter one. And you can turn there with with me if you'd like to Romans chapter one. We'll just look at a few verses here to get this idea of the unbelievers culpability in their unbelief. The unbelievers culpability, their guilt in suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Look at Romans 1.18 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Human responsibility is written all over that section. And you know what that means ultimately? It means that because they didn't know Christ, some of the most intelligent people this world has ever seen were fools. Albert Einstein, Stephen Hawking, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Bill Nye the science guy, fools. Or Dr. So-and-so at UNL, Notwithstanding his bow tie and his tweed jacket and his wispy mustache and his lengthy resume, notwithstanding his credentials and his tenure and his long academic track record, if he doesn't know Christ, he's actually a fool. Now, he might dress up his folly this time of year with all sorts of merriment and mirth. He might throw an amazing Christmas party, and as he's downing the eggnog with his students, he might ramble on about how great everything is and how happy he is, but in reality, he's a fool a joyless fool. And we all once were there. That's exactly what Titus 3.3 says. We also once were foolish ourselves. Moving on, the second trait of the joy-starved soul is this. They're disobedient. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient. Now the basic meaning of the term there, it's no mystery, is rebellious. We were rebellious against God. The human nature... The human heart, as we know from Jeremiah 17.9, is, is wicked and rebellious. And the human heart, as Jesus taught, is the very source and the seat of all lawless deeds and actions that we perform. Jesus said in Matthew 15.19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. And though God has ordained certain structures of authority to, to, to help restrain and curb and punish evil behavior... For instance, by appointing kings and rulers and other officials to govern citizens and to appoint parents to tend to and guide and lead their children. Any man-made law or rule or regulation, whether laid down by an elected official or by the father in a home, has no power to change the human heart from which every evil and every sin and every defilement flows. The human heart in its unredeemed condition is disobedient to the authority of God himself as well as all those authorities that are instituted by God, whether governmental or or parental. 
We see that in places like Titus 1.16. It says they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable, and here's the word, disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1 and 2, speaking of what will mark the end of days, says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, and then get this, disobedient to parents. So the, the human heart, by nature, thinks more highly of itself than it ought to think. The human heart is not only foolish, the human heart, as we see here, is rebellious. It's disobedient. As John Calvin once noted, in the same way as we are all fools, so we are all rebels. And we all lived that way in our former state. In a state of living that was antithetical to what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I say that it's antithetical to what it looks like to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. Because the Christian life ultimately is one of submission. Church members, as you know, are called to submit to your elders. Wives are called to submit to their husbands. Children are called to submit to the authority of their parents. We as believers are called to live submissively to the the rules, the edicts of our governing authorities. And the submission that we are called to demonstrate in those earthly relationships, in those human relationships, we know was modeled perfectly for us, to us, by our Lord who in his incarnation, in his humanity, submitted to the will of the Father. We see that in John 6, 38, the words of our Lord, where he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What this means is that our first instinct as believers should not be, how can I avoid submitting here? Or do I really have to submit? Or does God want me to submit? No, no, that constant chafing against authority is the mark of the unbeliever. It's the unbeliever who is constantly in rebellion. It's the unbeliever who is constantly challenging authority. It's the joy-starved soul who is regularly disobedient, constantly bucking authority, recognizing no ultimate authority, thinking he's the captain of his own ship, when in reality that ship's about to sink. It brings us to the third trait of the joy-starved soul, which is that he is deceived For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived. Those who currently stand outside the family of God. Those who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ, which describes every single one of us at some point in our lives, are by their very nature deceived. That word for deceived there has this meaning of being purposely led astray. Like you were once on the right path for some season at least, but now you've been purposely led off that path by somebody who was taking you off that path. It pictures 1 Peter 2.25 where it says we were continually straying like sheep. And who is that one who has led us off the path? Who is that one who is a deceiver? Who is the one who deceives the entire unbelieving world today and makes them think that they're happy in the time of happy holidays and makes them think that they're merry in this time of saying Merry Christmas? Who's the one, the deceiver, who's gotten people to think that Christmas is all about a man, a fat man in a red suit? Who's the one who's gotten the world to think that Christmas is all about gift receiving? Or if you're more altruistic, gift giving. Who's the one who has deceived the world into thinking, just cutting it straight here, that that Christmas is all about family? The answer, of course, is Satan. Satan in John 8, 44, Jesus calls him a liar. 
and the father of lies. Uh, we know from 1 John five nineteen that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know from 2 Corinthians 4, 4 that Satan is the God of this world. He has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For the unbeliever, Satan's strategy is working. Because all year long, not only at Christmas, they live under this heavy cloud of delusion. They think they're wise, but in fact, they're foolish. They think they're good people, and 99 out of 100 unbelievers will tell you that they're a good person, but they're called here disobedient. They they reject the truth, they're ignorant of the truth, they suppress the truth, and we see here in verse 3, they're deceived, reflecting the nature of their master, following the example of their spiritual father, the devil. As we continue on in verse three, we see this fourth trait of the joy-starved soul is that they are enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. In a sad and ironic twist, the joy-starved soul claims that they're free. You know, free from the oppressive shackles of religion and religiosity. Free from mom and dad's version of Christianity. Free from rules and regulations. Free to think independently. Free to finally think with my mind for myself. Free to finally be myself. Free to finally be happy, they'll say. I'm sure many of you have heard words like that from unbelieving loved ones and friends, maybe even verbatim. But the bitter irony of it all is that the unbeliever is far from free. They're the opposite of free. They're slaves. That's what it says here. They're enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. The joy-starved soul calls himself a freeman, but in fact, he is a slave, a slave to his lusts, a slave to his pleasures, a slave to his sin. Romans 6, 19 puts it this way. They're a slave to impurity and to lawlessness. That enslavement is not only on the exterior, though, in terms of the, the practices they find themselves engaged in. They're enslaved at the level of their heart. At the core of who that unregenerate person is, he has neither the desire nor the ability to do anything but sin, to be anything but sinful. Look at Romans chapter three, if you would, just so you know that I'm not up here theorizing or just throwing around some thoughts and opinions. Look at Romans three and how this just graphically depicts the unbeliever's sad state. Romans three We'll pick it up middle of verse nine where it says both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for a God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's a very long way of saying what we see in Titus 3.3. That they are enslaved to their lusts and their pleasures. Now we saw that word for lusts come up in our most recent Sunday morning message in Colossians. Where in Colossians 3.5 it says, Consider the members of your earthly bodies as dead. And it says to immorality, to impurity, to passion, evil desire. That's the word and greed. That word for desire over in Colossians 3 is the same word that we see here translated lust in Titus 3.3. 3. 
And again, as we've seen in our study of Colossians, desires in and of themselves are morally neutral. Some desires are good, like a desire to go to church, a desire to be an elder of the church, a desire to grow in godliness, a desire to grow in your understanding of God's word, a desire to be a more faithful father or friend or you name it. Other desires are wicked, like a desire to disobey any of God's standards as laid out in his word or a desire to stir up dissension in a local church or a desire to bring harm upon a brother or sister in Christ. In the context here in Titus 3, when Paul is speaking of enslavement, enslavement to lusts, he clearly has sinful lusts, sinful desires in mind. He continues on by saying it's not just lust they're enslaved to, though it's pleasures. The word for pleasures there is hedone, where we get our word hedonism, that, that insatiable pursuit of self-satisfaction and, and happiness, which so aptly describes the self-focused generation in which we live. The sense of this term pleasures here is clearly sinful pleasures. Maybe pleasures that didn't start as sinful but became sinful or pleasures that were sinful all along. The idea here is that the joy-starved soul is actually a storm-tossed soul. He maintains all the outward appearances of having it all figured out, having the right things, believing the right things, pursuing the right things, doing the right things, He's got the beautiful wife. He's got the two and a half kids. He's got the golden lab. He's got the high paying job. He's got the new Tesla truck. He's got all the new toys. But deep down, he knows and you know that what he lacks is joy. He doesn't have joy because the gray is starting to come in or the hair is starting to fall out and God has put eternity on his heart and he's coming to realize he's not gonna be here forever. He doesn't have joy because he can't quite shake the feeling that something is missing from his life and that there is a certain weighty purposelessness to his pursuits. He doesn't have joy because while he thinks he's free, he's actually enslaved. He doesn't have joy because he thinks, he doesn't realize that his only path to freedom is to become a slave of Jesus Christ. And he only become a slave of Jesus Christ by repenting and believing upon his name. He doesn't have joy because he doesn't understand yet as Jesus himself said in John eight thirty six, that if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. He is not at this point a, a joyful slave of Jesus. Rather, he is a joyless slave of his various lusts and pursuits. Moving on, the fifth trait of a joy-starved soul is, is this one, malice. After he mentions being enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, next comes spending our life in malice. That word for malice comes from a, a Greek word that simply means evil or having a vicious character. It's a word we see in Romans one twenty nine, also speaking of the unregenerate person, which says they're, they're filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, same word there, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit. To varying degrees, but inevitably, the unsaved person lives a life of malice and evil and wickedness. Back in my law school days, they taught us in the old criminal law classes that distinction between first-degree murder and second-degree murder. It's a big distinction because it depends, depending on which you're convicted of, you spend a lot more time in prison if it's one versus the other. But that distinction between what makes something first-degree murder or second-degree murder all centers on whether there was something called malice aforethought. That's what the old criminal law casebooks talk about, malice aforethought, meaning the perpetrator, the murderer, planned out that act ahead of time. 
Maybe it was by writing a manifesto. Maybe it was by hiring a hitman. Maybe it was by simply lurking behind a tree or a door or a bush or whatever. But the point is they knew exactly what they were doing. The act they committed was not accidental. Rather, it was concocted. So it is with the joy-starved soul. They aren't accidental sinners. They're first-degree sinners, purposeful rebels against God's will and and God's word. The sixth mark of a joy-starved soul we see next is envy. Spending our life in malice, it says, and envy. I mean, talk about a sin which says so much about the unbeliever's joyless state. Envy, jealousy. The joy-starved soul lives an envious life. They spend their lives consumed with envy. They're consumed by what others have and what others are doing and where others are going and what others are spending. By definition, they can find no satisfaction and no contentment and no joy in what's been given to them. Their desire for more is insatiable. Their thirst for more is unquenchable. And they go on continually living in this state of envy, which we know from Galatians 5.21 is a deed of the flesh. They continually view their life as this competitive race. He who dies with the most toys wins. They continually view themselves as being behind in that race and always trying to catch up with everyone else. And this is not just a mark of their being joy-starved. This is a mark of their being unsaved. Romans one twenty nine again speaks of those who are full of envy as being the mark of the unregenerate. That their sin of envy is a bottomless pit. It's a mirage. There are these sinful cravings that will never ultimately be satisfied. And they're just cycling and cycling and not getting anywhere. John MacArthur says rightly, he says, envy is a sin that carries its own reward. It guarantees its own frustration and disappointment. With that, we get to the final, the seventh mark of the joy-starved soul, which is this, hate. You see it there. Hateful, hating one another. Now that word hateful first refers to that a person having certain attributes or characteristics that brings the hatred of others upon them. Here, at least, it's not referring to you hating someone else. It's referring to them hating you because of something repulsive in you, because of something detestable in you. The old translations talk about you becoming a byword and a stench to others. This is speaking to somebody who's become disgusting and an embarrassment to others. They're a fool who's surrounded by other fools, a, a disobedient person who's surrounded by other disobedient people, But now those foolish, disobedient fellow rebels now have directed their ire at this joy-starved soul. He's hateful, meaning he breeds hate. He brings hate upon himself. And then there's the last one at the end of verse 3, hating one another. So it's hateful. They bring on hate, but then they hate one another, meaning they eventually start hating everyone. And that's a very strong word here. It means to detest or to abhor. The idea is that joy-starved souls are not only on the receiving end of the hatred from others, they start eventually hating others and hating everyone. Putting that practically and very modernly, they start withdrawing from their spouse and their marriages if they have one. They start resenting their children and their families. They start pulling away from their friends. They start shutting themselves off from their neighbors. They start disdaining every form of rule and authority. The poison of hatred that has done its work for years in their hearts eventually takes over in their lives. 
They eventually just draw a moat around their lives and pull the drawbridge up and call it a life with their only companions being a cat and a newspaper and maybe a cup of coffee and eventually an in-home hospice provider who cares for them in the final days of their hopeless, sad, hateful, joyless lives. As one commentator puts it, hatred is perhaps the loneliest of sins. Again, as I said at the outset, this verse doesn't exactly scream Christmas, does it? I can tell by your reactions. I do still believe, though, and I stand by what I said at the outset, that I do think this is an ideal place for us to begin as we turn our minds and our hearts to the first coming of our Lord. As we remember that there once was a time in our lives before we came to faith in Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, the Word become flesh, that we were once these joy-starved souls. Every single one of us in our lives, at at some point in our lives, was committed to and and driven by these very things. Folly, disobedience, being deceived, enslaved, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. And what that should do in every one of us is instill in us this overwhelming sense of gratitude and thanksgiving and, yes, joy for the great salvation we've been gifted And that's a gift that sits not under a tree. It's a gift that is far more precious and far more priceless. It's a gift that will neither wither nor wilt. It's a gift of eternal value. And it was a gift that was purchased for us by and through the death of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we've seen here in Titus 3.3 this text that has such hopelessness to it. But then look at the next couple of verses. Titus 3, 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Of course, at Christmas time, we are remembering the birth of Christ, as as we should, as we encounter these scriptures. But we also remember where this goes. We understand that the child that was born in the manger ultimately came to this earth on a mission to die, to go to the cross, to stand in the place of sinners like you and me so that our sins might be forgiven and so that we might be restored to a right relationship with the God of the universe. That's what... We talk about ultimately, not just at Christmas, but at Easter and really all year long. Just a moment, speaking of the death of Christ, we're gonna begin the communion portion of our service. And that communion portion of our service, I really wanna get our hearts oriented toward the birth of Christ all season long, but we know that the birth of Christ culminates in the death of Christ. And, And the death of Christ is really the linchpin of the gospel message. The gospel message begins with God. And knowing who God is in his character and his attributes and his person. What the scriptures reveal is that, that, that God is a holy God. He's not some goofy grandfather that you sit in your lap and he pats you on the head and just lets you go. He's a holy God. He's a righteous God. And he is a God who on account of his holiness and his righteousness hates sin. This God, though, is also patient, and this God is also merciful, and this God is also a God of love. 
And he demonstrated his love toward mankind most powerfully by the sending of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world, the very event that we're remembering and celebrating all December long leading up to Christmas. God sent his son into this world on a mission, and that mission was to die, to stand in the place of sinners like you and me, to go to Calvary's cross and to pay the penalty for our sin, to to shed his own innocent blood and to die on our behalf. When we partake of the elements that we'll be partaking of, we are simply reflecting on, remembering, and this time of year especially rejoicing as we consider who we once were in our sin. As we consider that unfathomable debt that we owe to this holy God, this debt that we'd racked up on account of our sin, as we reflect on the fact that we faced the, the sure and terrifying wrath of God had he not intervened. And we do reflect on the fact that he did intervene. And he did send his son to this world. And he did have his son go to the cross. And how through that death on the cross, he paid in full the debt of our sin. So that our sin could be forgiven. So that relationship with God could be restored. And so that hope of eternal life and eternal fellowship with God could be secured. Over in 1 Corinthians 11.26, Paul says this, that as, as long Or as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're going to be doing in just a few minutes. We're going to be remembering Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, the word made flesh, the baby born in a manger in Bethlehem, how he eventually died for us. We are proclaiming his death. I do pray that this is a time where we can not lose that connection between the birth of Christ and the death of Christ. I know I've said it already, but we we can tend to divorce those two. Right? We can tend to think of, you know, Jesus is only God or Jesus is only human, but the scriptures teach both, fully God, fully man. We can overemphasize or only think about the birth of Christ and, and the wonders of the incarnation, but fail to capture that it led to the death of Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you again for this time together, this time to remember the death of our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Short of his death, we were hopeless. Short of his death, we had no purpose. Short of his death, as we saw this morning in this little section of Titus, we were joyless. Had no real purpose, direction, joy, meaning in this life. But because of your perfect plan, set in motion before the foundation of the world, because of your perfect plan of redemption mediated through the blood of your son, the Lord Jesus, we have salvation We have mercy, we've received mercy, we have hope, and now we have joy. God, I do pray that as those who have been forgiven, those who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, those who find salvation in Emmanuel's veins, that we would go out and live like it. That we would not just take this as a cheap salvation or as information that doesn't transform, but rather we would take the great salvation that you've granted us and gifted us through the blood of your son and go live as faithful ambassadors for him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.